what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes, Pat. I can't help but notice you have a new puppy out there. I do have a new puppy. Have you thought about getting some expert advice on how to raise that puppy? Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it just happens that we do have an expert as part of our sponsor group. Really? Yeah, Dan Croft Canine. Do they run puppy class? They run amazing puppy classes. What what on earth do they do there? They've got whole ranges of foundation for puppy school. So they're running a complete socialization package and they're doing a whole range of different levels for puppies. And that's what they really wanted to emphasize is that they are experts in puppy raising and training. Where are they experts in puppy raising and training? In Toronto, Canada. Whoa. So if you were in Toronto, Canada, yep. and you had a friend, a client, a relative, just anybody who was getting a puppy mm-hmm. and you wanted to set that puppy up for success, yep, you could probably send them to Dan Croft, can I? If I was over in Toronto, Canada with my new little Rottweiler puppy, Mando, I would go over, and I'm, I swear this, I would go over and I would do the socialization program with them. Great I idea. love what they're doing. Have you seen their setup online? Oh, amazing. Fantastic. Amazing. They had a tire with a medicine ball with the pit bull doing a drop stay on top of it. My goodness. Amongst a dozen other dogs that were doing all similar things, like on BOSU balls and all sorts of things. My goodness. It was great. Fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, speaking of your puppy, mm-hmm. what's going on with his nutrition? Couldn't go past canine tuticles. Supplemented up. Supplemented up to the help. My goodness. Yeah. So he should have arms like Arnold Schwarzenegger by the time we're finished. Where did you get those canineceuticals from? From Narelle Cook. Narelle Cook. How, yeah. do you, how do you know her? <laughs> <laughs> Funny that she's got the same last name as me. Yeah. The supplier is very local. Absolutely. Canineceuticals, but ha- legit, it's probably the best supplements available best for Best supplements dog. available, human grade, gone through the absolute rigorous testing program. I mean, Narelle's got stat sheets on it and everything like that on demand, so... People want to know what they're actually putting into their dog's body supplement-wise. They can reach out to her and she's got all the facts and figures before she even put it down as a physical product. She spent years and years researching it before it was actually come to market. So great stuff. Yes, the puppy's definitely on it. All our dogs are on it. And there's a shit ton of people around Australia and New Zealand who are taking caninecuticals and the feedback is astronomical. Amazing. Yep. Do you plan on taking Mando on your motorbike? If I did, you know who I'd have to go to, don't you? You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound boxes. Oh, Rowdy Hound dog kennels. Yeah. From Horny George. George Kittridge himself. You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound dog kennels to go on the back of your motorbike. How good is his social media? It's the best. Yeah. I love watching the dogs cruise around motorbikes. I think it's one of the coolest things ever. They've got their little doggles on. Yeah. You know, like we talk about living the best life. Well, for people who are motorcyclists, they can do both. I'm serious about thinking about getting one, but then I've got to train a trainer. I, I don't know if having a Rottweiler on the back of a bike is going to be a great <laughs> idea. Your sport but, bike. <laughs> but, well, uh, I think you should do it. Maybe one day when I've got a smaller mid-sized dog, uh, I would get a Rowdy Hound dog kennel and mm. I could travel around. So I could not only enjoy the company of my dog, which hundreds of people seem to be doing across the United States of America, and I could motorcycle at the same time. So Amazing. two things that are very dear to my heart, Coming together. All right. This ad's going on for a long time. Mm. I need to get out of here and go and train some dogs. Yep. But do you know where I got the equipment that I'm going to use to train those dogs? The goat. 
The goat. The Billy Goat's gruff. Ein's a wiener. <laughs> the wiener himself. Ironswick <laughs> dog quip. Yep. If you're not buying all your dog training gear from them, yep. I don't know where you're fucking getting it from. Well, if not from Furman, Ironswick dog quip, the Ein's a wiener. How the hell does he sell anything being such a grumpy old bastard? He's online now. He's got a website. That's you right. Can, they don't have to deal with him. You correct. can actually buy things <laughs> off the website. You can actually do it now. Yep. Ironswickdogquip.com.au yep. or just .com. Probably one of them. I don't it's know. one of them. It just, we'll put try it out. Yeah, put it, you, yeah. You'll click. You'll find a link. You'll buy some stuff. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart, and I'm joined on this Sunday afternoon by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And you just got back from Townsville. Yep. Just came back. Just arrived very late last night. Spent the whole day on numerous delayed flights. Flew all over the country to get back, but I'm here. I made it. Very good. During the week, I had a big group of NDTF. We had 15 students. So sometimes we have up to 15 students, but sometimes there's students that have to transfer and there's things that happen which don't get a full compliment, but we mm-hmm. had the full compliment. These poor buggers that were on this course, they had quite an ordeal. So they were one of the COVID-affected groups. Right. So they were a block one that had to do it online. At that stage, we were literally just – everyone was locked down. It was going on all around the world. So it was on that online training paradigm that everybody was sort of existing in and, you know, we were doing private lessons online and all sorts of things. But they were one of the two groups. And that's the first time in – me teaching within a 15-year window that that sort of thing has ever happened before. So Mm -hmm. it was different. It was strange. It was unusual. Being a practical course and relying on a lot more pragmatic, it put them at a disadvantage because it was a sit-down lesson. It didn't mean that we didn't encourage them to go off with their dogs and train and do things or, you know, get in there and practice. But it's not like when they come out here, there is a combination of theory and practice. And there's, you know, like the practice starts to grow bigger and bigger as they get on the course. Mm -hmm. As we start trusting them more and they're developing their skills and they understand how to get dogs in and out of the kennels, it goes from a little bit of handling, a lot of talking to migrating into a lot of handling and a lot less talking or Mm -hmm. a lot less of the theory and the lecture side of things. Getting back to the point, they were affected by COVID. They had to do their block one. Then when they had their block two about to happen, we got massive flooding going on all throughout Queensland, New South Wales. Mm. And those poor people had to endure that whole process where we just had to find a section where they were already booked in, they were already had their accommodation sorted out, all, all sorts of things. We had to cancel it all because we were just literally going underwater like the rest of the state. Yeah. And find another spot for them. So fortunately, we got them in just before the school holidays. It only just happened. So we had to play a lot of catch up with this group. They had to get in. They had to learn a lot of things, that, which in block one really gives them the tools and the understanding and the capability to do. We had to get them up to speed very short amount of time and process them into their assessment. So mm. super proud of them. They really came together like their collaboration with each other and their understanding of what they needed to do, they started working hard from the get-go. Like there's a lot of pressure on them. And mm. there's a, there, there were even a few students in the group because of the strong unity that they formed and the good collaboration and the skills and understanding that they developed together. There was a few students who came up to me after the course had finished and said, I was actually going to leave midway through because I just didn't feel that I had the capability to get through this course. But because of 
you know, the way you and Kana conducted yourself, how hard you worked with us and the collaboration between the students, we decided to endure it. And well, that's keep awesome. Going. That's good. Isn't it nice? I'm super proud of people for pushing through. We just did a whole thing on negative reinforcement. And you can see when people get through that pressure, how relieved they mm. are and how reinforced they are at the end of it. But like everything, leading up to the understanding and the learning process that happens with negative reinforcement, the pressure puts you in a conflicted state of mind. Mm. And even though there is a a light at the end of the tunnel, sometimes that fucking tunnel goes on forever. Mm. And you just think, do I really want to walk down this to the other end of it? Or, mm. you know, should I just stop now and just go back where I came from? Yeah. And that's where I think it sits with people who are feeling that enduring stress. I was considerably impressed with the endurance people showed and and how much grit they developed during the course and how much they came together and supported each other to get through something which was fundamentally very difficult for them at the time. Mm. Mm. Well, that's cool. How'd you go with your group? Yeah, it was good. Yeah, Yeah, had had a good time. Yeah, it was great. It's always an honour for me to work with the Army guys and it feels cool to me to sort of, you know, stay in the fight a little bit, you know what I mean? So. Uh, but the army detection handlers are incredible. Like yep. it, their standard of training is very high. They're real dog trainers. They really know how to train a dog, mm. not just handle one. Yeah. So yeah, they're great. They had a really good time. And really what I was sort of teaching them was that pressure piece, you know, yep. like the, I can't teach them shit about detection. They, they're all over that. They're all over it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just sort of about the, how to put the musk key into a few different parts of their behavior, yep. specifically dealing with, you know, sort of some of the conflicts that the conflicting motivators that their dog might encounter while it's working, mm. but yeah, had a great time. I th- was good. I think I said that to you last time with working with SOA and AFP and so forth and watching not so much SOA. I haven't had a lot of experience with them yet, but they are getting better. The standard is getting better. You can see that they're really reaching out to the broader community and looking at developing their skill sets. Yeah. And same thing with the AFP. Amazing how much they're growing as a unit together and what they're trying to do to push themselves into an advanced skill set. As you said, they're great handlers anyway, you know, yeah. like- these people are, are putting themselves at extraordinary risk mm-hmm. um, time after time, especially when you're deployed and you're going into foreign places with dogs and people are genuinely trying to kill you every day. Yeah. Uh, that's an extreme situation. Yeah. Well, as I said to these guys, like I find detection, especially explosive detection, just a little bit high stress. Mm. Having been blown up pretty badly by an IED once, I was sort of one of the very few people that survived an IED, mm. that dog had gone over. But the dog wasn't searching in that moment. So like, there's a lot to it, but it's a high stress thing because I have been at the pointy end of explosive detection dog that didn't detect an explosive. Yeah. And there's lots of reasons for that. I certainly don't blame the dog or the handler, but still as a person who's been blown up, (laughs) it's working with explosives in the capacity of dog training to find them. Mm. Like I happily work with explosives. That was nearly 15 years ago that I got blown up and, and I've worked with loads of explosives. I've made explosive charges, set off explosives, done all those kinds of things since that. It didn't give me weird feelings about explosives, but it did give me weird feelings about training of dogs to find them. Absolutely. Because I, I have definitely felt the consequence of dogs not finding them. Mm. Um, so it's a tricky thing, you know, but anyway, it was good. I had a really good time. It's just, man, yesterday was just a horrendous travel day, Yeah, (laughs) but that's life. And, 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 you know, it's tricky at the moment just with two young kids and it's hard to be away from home. I don't really enjoy being away from home the way that I used to. So now it's a, it used to be that there was a big amount of positive reinforcement for me in traveling to train with other cool dog trainers all around the world. I used to love doing that. And that was offset by missing my family and not liking being away. But now the sting of missing my family and not wanting to be away is much higher and I still very much enjoy it. So it just makes it more, yeah, I very much enjoy the training part, 
but it just makes it a, a, just a more tricky decision to do, right? Mm. Like it's a, it's a more difficult thing to do. But anyway, that's my story. The difficult part for me, I don't have children and never have had children at any stage. The difficult part for me is realizing the amount of work that I'm going to come back to. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's the thing for me that I kind of think to myself, is it worth it having to come back to all of the emails and all of the problems and so forth associated yeah. with all of those companies? And then you think, fuck, it's just, I don't know if I can do it. Yeah. Mm. Well, and normally when I travel, like I just sort of go blank face and stare at the wall in the airport. But this trip I was editing video for my other job, like all the way up, yep. up late at night, uploading, changing stuff, making thumbnails, oh, that's blah, hard. blah, blah. And then did the same for our guys, like made mm. uh, Patreon content all the way back. So yep. But did manage to watch some of the boys, got, oh, got yes. caught up to date on that, which I'm very happy about. So now we can discuss that. Anyway, hey, we've got a topic. Yes, It we took have. us a while to figure one out. Mm. But we found a post in our group that I think neither of us actually saw when it was happening. So we want to talk about it now. Mm. It's from Ariel Harvey. And she says, a podcast has me thinking, what is the most dangerous piece of advice you've heard or given in regards to training dogs? Yep. So I know when I mentioned this, you said, oh, yeah, let's do that because you've got a big one. Mm. But I want to sort of just go a, a different route just real quick. Sure. It's like lots of like small things. And so one of the things that whenever I teach at events, before we get any dogs out, I prefer to do a theory day. I, you know, I learned that the hard way that I'd much prefer. I think that, you know, at many events, people will do whatever they want. But for me, I think that getting dogs out right away is sort of like putting the cart before the horse. Mm-hmm. I want to teach people, you know, give people the theory base level of understanding. And I want to kind of set the scene as to what we're going to do before the dog comes out. Yep. I just think that that's a better way of learning Mm -hmm. in that I think that it's unfair on the dog for you to be intermittently stopping the session to have to be explained about what's going to happen next Mm -hmm. in great detail. Like it's inevitable that has to happen. We have to stop and say, Hey, now do this because there's two learners. The dog is the learner via the human learner, but they're still learning from me in that moment. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of disjointedness in the training, but I want to minimize that as much as possible. So what I want to, you know, the inputs from me, I want to be like, Hey, remember this thing that we spoke about. And then they can do that rather than me having to teach that whole thing. Mm-hmm. I like to do a big chunk of theory beforehand and then get into the dog work. I've just found much more success in doing that. And I'll continue to do that in the future. But one of the things I always say before we get dogs out is you know, I don't know your program. If people are going to get their dog out and they want to do bite work or some, you know, some flashy obedience, that kind of stuff. Typically I'm happy to say, Hey, what you're doing is not correct. Do this mm-hmm. and, and be you know, pretty direct in saying that. Cause they are areas that I'm well-versed in. And I, for the most part, know what I'm talking about. I fuck up, but for the most part, I make good decisions in that space. But when people come in with like highly specialized dogs Or, you know, dogs that are in a program that I don't know. So like even if someone, I haven't done it a long time, but when I was doing a bunch of work in the States, on the West Coast of the States is more ring related, right? There's much more PSA on the East Coast than on on the West. And when I was doing stuff on the West, people come in and they're doing either French ring, Mondio ring or whatever. And I'm always really careful with those people and, and agility and you know, all the different things that you can do with the dogs. I always say to people, like, I don't know the specifics. I don't know the ins and outs of your program. You need to be really clear with me that just remember, you can't hurt my feelings. Mm. I'm being paid regardless of how this goes. So I'm happy for it to go however it does. And if you don't want to do what I ask you to do, I will plead my case to you. I'll explain exactly why. And if you're still unhappy with it, and maybe we have a decent back and forth about it, it's your dog 
So don't ever do anything that me or anybody else suggests that we do to your dog if you think that there's a problem in doing that. And like I say, lots of people have stopped me and said, oh, no, I don't I don't feel comfortable about this. And then I say, but these are the reasons. And then they go, oh, okay, knowing that now, I'm good to continue. Mm. But other people have said to me, no, no, I can't do that because that caused me a problem somewhere else. And yep. I'm like, oh, cool, because I don't know about that other thing. So sweet, glad you told me because mm. now I agree. Having knowing that, I agree totally, so let's not do that. So I think on the topic of dangerous advice – I think that all of us as dog trainers are really capable of giving very bad and dangerous advice that we think is pertinent and good advice and on point because in our scope of knowledge of what we know about dog training for ourselves and the dog that's in front of us, it's good advice. But given the totality of the information that's available, that isn't not, not all of it is available to us in that moment, it could potentially be really bad advice. Mm. The other thing is, I think, especially when you do the seminar sort of circuit, and, you know, I'm lucky. I was taught by the best how to do this stuff. But I feel no pressure to make radical gains with a dog right there and then. And I think sometimes people do feel that pressure and sometimes people have, you know, people who are attendees of these events have an expectation that that's going to happen, that they're going to have a dog turn up that is wildly aggressive and it's going to leave friendly. Mm. And, you know, sometimes that happens and there's specific times that can happen and that'd be fine. And, and, and it's, and it's the right outcome from the dog. But as I always explain to people, you know, I was trained by some of the best goddamn bro dog brokers on the planet. I know how to make a dog look like something that it's not for a very short period of time. Yep. And I can make your dog look fantastic or I can make your dog look like shit. Mm. And I can do that in the same session. You know, that's what dog brokers do. You turn up with a dog that you want to sell and they make the, they make, they make the dog look so bad that you want to give it to them. You, you're <laughs> happy that they take it off your hands. Yep. And then an hour later, they can sell that dog for $10,000 because they, could, they know how to bring out the traits that people do want to see. Yep. And I think in our industry, there's actually some, some pretty well-known people who are exceptional at like that sneaky civil work that you can do with a dog, right? Mm. Where you can bring her an aggressive response from a totally not aggressive dog. If there, there has to be a slither of it there, but you can bring out some forward aggression that then requires a three-week board and train to fix, mm. right? When it was never there to begin with. So- one of the things before we sort of carry on with this topic, I just wanted to hit that point in that I think, first of all, all of us are capable of giving really bad and dangerous dog training advice, even if we are super well educated and even if we are super well meaning, because it's impossible. There isn't a single person I know of in the dog training industry that's across the full spectrum of dog training because mm. it just, there's so much. It's like the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, you can take a pill that's been taken by thousands of other people and have a very adverse or deadly effect from it. Mm -hmm. And it can, you know, like put you in hospital or can kill you. Because of the specifics of your situation. Exactly. Yeah. And that's not unlike what you just addressed before, because there are plenty of times like that where there is a steeped history or a fundamental behavior that that dog has or the handler and the dog team have together that you're largely unaware of because you're limited by information so as a experienced trainer, you can look at the situation and you can diagnose it to the level of your education and capabilities, but still come away with a very bad outcome from it. Yeah. Uh, it's happened to almost everybody I know, including me. Oh, it has to. It, it has, has to, to at some point. Yeah. It, that's the law of averages. It, it yep. just has to at some point. Mm. But I think that's what I wanted to be clear on. I think all of us are capable of giving really terrible advice that we do thinking that we're giving great advice and we do well-meaning. Mm. But then the other thing is I think that it's not uncommon that 
sometimes dog trainers do things in the moment to make a dog look a particular way in the moment. Yep. And it can have no detrimental effect later beyond the training, just not lasting. Mm. Or in some cases, it can really fuck up a dog. Yep. And, and we've been at events. You probably know the the sort of situations I'm alluding to where- I do. Where someone can make a dog look good, but actually lay a booby trap that's not going to show itself for about six weeks. Mm. So- the handler is not likely to make the association to that event mm. and know that that's what caused such a big problem with their dog. I'm sure that some of the people that do that are not doing that maliciously, but they're doing it because there's the pressure of performance, mm. right? It's like, no, you're the person we paid to come out from wherever you came and I want to see some dramatic change in these dogs. And I think that I don't feel that pressure. I, I really don't because I was taught by people to not, fall into that trap. Mm. And I, I put that out front. I, I tell people right from the jump when we bring out the dogs, I'm like dog training, real good dog training works in, in increments, tiny little increments. Yep. And the whole point of these practical sessions is to demonstrate the path forward, not complete the path. Mm. But every now and again, you do get a dog come out and you're like, oh, no, 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 we're going to fix this now. This is appropriate to fix now. Or we're going to, you know, set this dog up for success right now. We're going to radically change what's going to happen right now. But that's rare, and I think I'm totally comfortable with that. More often than not, I just want to make a start and then explain to you the process. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why I prefer not to have random dogs as the working spots, just random like the first 10 people that booked. I prefer to have like sort of a spectrum of dogs, ages, type, all that kind of stuff, so that then you know maybe if someone has a particular issue with their young dog – we can start it on their young dog and then maybe demonstrate what would likely be the next step on a different dog, mm. right? And then, you know, and then in six weeks do this bit on this other dog, right? And so you can sort of begin to understand it without that dog having to go through more than it should. The other thing I sometimes do, like I just did this with the army guys, is we say, this dog's capable of us rushing. So I'll say, he's not really going to understand, like this is not effective training, mm -hmm. but we're going to do it and it's not going to detrimentally impact the dog, but I want to do these next three reps as demonstrations for you, but you should go back to rep one and do that for two weeks and then do this next step for yep. two weeks. But because we'll just leave the collar on level one, it won't make any difference to the dog. It's not going to have the effect, mm. but you get to practice and I get to observe your timing and you know your inputs and make those kinds of things. And so you can sort of do that the repetition that you'll do effectively in the future, we can do right now and be supervised and get feedback so that when you do it properly in the future and it has the effect that you want, it'll be done correctly because you got the feedback from now. Mm. So that's my caveat to the whole thing. We've yes. all fucked up. Every yeah. dog trainer yep. that's listening or and certainly myself and, and you acknowledge as well, we have made many a mistake mm -hmm. and given incorrect and, and potentially dangerous advice by accident in the past. You made a statement a while ago that I entirely concur with, which is you can't make an omelette without breaking some eggs, which is a, it's an old statement. Unfortunately, there are eggs that you will break along the way, which are dogs, you mm. know, they're dogs and even handlers. I've had adverse effect with handlers before where people have come back and, and blamed you for their miscalculation or their misunderstanding in the advice that they were given. I find that a lot of times where some really bad advice is given out is during the peak of Dunning-Kruger. Mm. <laughs> that, yeah. That's yeah. a lot of enthusiasm is oozed from the person who believes they're the academic or the trainer at that point in time. But 
you know, they've just got a little bit of information. And it, look, to be honest, it's like me with neurology. I mean, I love listening and trying to digest as much as I can about how the brain is adversely affected by different actions or chemical reactions in the body and so forth. But what people in neurology like Sapolsky and all of the people that I love listening to, Huberman and the rest of them, what they know about it is so vast compared yeah. to what I know. They're the legitimate people who spend their the most of their adult life pursuing this. And it's even when I got to talk to Robert Sapolsky and, and spoke to him about it, I think he said that he spent far too much time on the hippocampus and really wished he spent that time on the prefrontal cortex mm. because he believed that he wasted a lot of time in a region of the brain which was not as important as the region which he should have gone into. Yeah, right, and then yeah. when he got into that region, he realised this is the area. But it takes that time mm. and that understanding to know that because I wouldn't know that. Yeah, I'm in total Dunning-Kruger when it comes to neuro- neurology or brain plasticity and so forth. I'm interested in it and I'm a fan of the work and I can repeat the intelligent things they say. But as far as it gets into the realm of deep diving and unpacking some of the really juicy parts of information, I have to go back to their material and literally quote what they're saying because I don't have the capability to give that advice, nor would I, because I'm not that. It's the same thing. I know a lot about behavior, but I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I won't profess to sit down with anybody and say, I can cure your problems. I can Mm. make them go away. What I can say to them is I'm a friend and I can listen Mm. and I can be here and I can be present, but I would not be so bold to put somebody in a dangerous situation and saying, yeah, come and lay on my couch and I'll fix all your problems. Yeah, There's even times now with dogs where I've learned to address an issue where I've thought, I just won't deal with this issue. It's not something that I'm comfortable dealing with anymore. And people say to me, what does that take for you? You know, like you've been in the industry for 30 years. Well, as I said before, you come to me about agility, I'm not going to be a coach. You come mm. to me about fly ball, I'm not going to be a coach. You come to me about lure coursing, <laughs> I'm definitely not going to be your coach. Yeah, That's just something that I don't have the proficiency or the aptitude or the desire to want to coach people in. It's, yeah. it's something that I could learn if I wanted to get hands down and get into the minutiae of it. You used that word last week. I forgot about that. If I wanted to get into the minutiae of things and I could say, well, I could go and coach myself with somebody, it probably wouldn't take me as long as the average person yeah, because yeah. I'm a bit more fluent in it than what other people have. I've got more experience. But people would be ill-advised to come to me for that Mm. sort of information now. And I would damage their dogs and I would cost them and I would fuck them up if I put them out there and they were training for competition and I put them out there at that level because it's not something that I'm hungry about. It's not something that I'm enthusiastic about and it's certainly not something that I have the knowledge that somebody has been running it 100 times and is winning first and second place and can coach other people how to do it. Just to caveat on that too – Some dangerous advice that I encourage people to look at is just because there is somebody running first and second place, they might be proficient themselves with their own dog, but Mm. not to impart that knowledge onto somebody else. Yeah. Because I've seen extremely good handlers before that are fucking terrible coaches Mm -hmm. and they have tried to put their hand in the coach ring and they are just woeful at it. Mm. But they are amazing with their own dogs and their own handling techniques, like full marks to them, like they're brilliant with what they do. That's a different skill set. It's a different skill set and I guess what I'm saying is some people forget to stay in their lane. Mm. 
Even Tiger Woods has a coach, man. Absolutely. That's the thing, right? Absolutely. So like, no matter how good you are, there's somebody that can help you be better even if you can outperform them in every measure. And you never got there by yourself. You yeah. never do. Like you're always riding on the shoulder of a giant somewhere. Yeah. You know, like even when you become a giant, there's always somebody out there who is out gianting you. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. You know, like I used to look at that as a weakness in myself, but I kind of realized it's a strength to be allied with the giants. You know, like to be amongst them and to be seen by them and to be coached by them entitles you to become one of them. I think it's an old book. I can't remember if the book is titled this, but it's called The Enemy of Great is Good. Mm. That's what a lot of people do settle for. They settle for being good enough where they could have settled for being great. Mm. Something that in this industry and others, the closer people approach to expertise – the less certainty with which they speak. Yes. Have you noticed that? Yes, that it's, it's usually people who are like, this is definitely what it is and it can only be this. Mm. Usually much less skillful and much less knowledgeable than someone that says, hmm, well, it's probably this, but it could be these other things, right? Because certainty comes from a guaranteed outcome. And if when you speak with certainty, when people who do speak with true certainty and, that, and conviction and they mean it, mm. really more often than not – that indicates a lack of experience yes. because it's like, yes, you're correct. In your experience of training three dogs, that is exactly how it has gone. But in my experience of training 300 dogs in this exact same scenario, 270 of them have gone the way that you're expecting it to go, but there have been 30 others. There's been 10% of them that do not fit within that system. Mm-hmm. And and it is not likely but possible that this is one of those 10% that you are yet to experience, right? Interesting you were talking about that. I just had Jordan Rowland on the course from Tasmania. Oh, yeah. He was one of the NDTFEs. And he had a dog that was pulling all over the place and I showed him within probably a matter of minutes on how to teach the dog how to social walk. I knew right there and then when I did it, he mentioned in a jestful sort of way, he goes, oh, now I've just been shown how inadequate I am. And I just said, mate, I've been doing this for 30 years and if I can't get this under control now and teach this dog how to be successful in walking nicely on the lead in a short amount of time, by no means have I cured it. I haven't, but I've just shown the dog with me right now how to be more successful, how to live its best life walking like this and how rewarding it is for the dog. I said, if I can't do that after 30 years, there's no way I should be training you guys and I should hang up my hat in shame after this. Yeah. He laughed and I said, so don't feel bad about it. I was terrible at the start as well. Like I would have let the dog pull all over the place and, you know, had the dog dragging me all over the oval because I wouldn't have known how to manage it. And then I would have done a terrible job of trying to correct a behavior that the dog didn't understand and then being inadequate in it. And there's a whole list of things that are compounding on the reasons why this didn't go so well. Mm -hmm. And I said, but now I know what it takes. You know, I know the thresholds. I know the levels. I know the change behaviors. I know how to modify it. I know how to use the applications of the matrix better. Like I understand what that is and I understand how to make it beneficial and favorable to the dog. Mm. And that's why you're here. You're on the journey of a thousand miles and you're somewhat along the journey now because you've done it. And I said, but it's also nice that you are in a position to understand where you are inadequate and where it needs work. Mm. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. Identifying that and taking responsibility for that and understanding that there is more work to be done in those areas, that is great and commendable in anybody. We all need to do that. We all understand there's more work to be done in some areas, especially if you want to have proficiency in them. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about some dangerous advice. Okay. I want to go first. Okay. The dumbest fucking shit 
that yep. I see people trying to convince other people to do is fuck with dogs while they eat, and it drives me insane. Oh, yeah. It drives me insane, Glenn. Yeah. And here's the thing. Very few people, like pet dog owners and even pet dog trainers, have dealt with proper resource guarding and food aggression. Mm-hmm. And so, like, real, yeah. like, genetically, this is mine, fuck you, don't take it from me. There's yep. very few people that have dealt with that. Mm. And they might think that they have, but more often than not, it's like a weird little learned behavior that the dog's got, right? Rather than, the, like, the ingrained willingness to fight the for emotion. a resource. The emotion. Yeah, because very few dogs have that. Mm. And But here's the thing. So in the working dog space, I had a really interesting conversation with a guy the other day. I won't go into detail on it, but in the working dog space, a lot of the traits that we want in a dog are totally undesirable in a pet dog. Mm. And one of those things is like, you know, in the bite dog space especially, is resource guarding. So, you know, people who end up with KMPV bloodline Malinois, right, for example- They've got a lot of resource guarding in them mm. because they perform an object guard. Yep. They <laughs> right? And like, of course, with a dog that can, you know, you can teach any dog to perform the object guard. You can teach it as a behavioral exercise where the dog, you know, stands on a place board and runs out and bites the person as they get close. And then let's go. Like you can teach it to a dog who has no guarding capacity or no desire to, to guard. You can teach it as an exercise but you're never going to get the same points and it's never going to look as good Mm. and it's never going to be the same function as a dog that when he's given something says, this is mine and anyone who tries to take it from me is getting bitten, Mm. right? And so in the, like, especially in the KMPV and for people who don't know using those acronyms, this is the Dutch police dog program, right? Yep. There's literally more than a hundred years of genetic selection that has bred dogs to do that. Mm. But the thing is, this is why, you know, certain bloodlines of dogs, the drive comes from that guardingness. And without it, the drive has to come from somewhere else. Because if a dog will guard something, he looks at it and says, this is mine, you can't take it. One way to look at that is resource guarding. The other way to look at that is possessiveness. Mm. And a lot of the drive to bite and fight, like there's there's certainly, I won't say fight drive because that will fucking trigger people and it's not a real thing, mm. but the 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 willingness to stay in a fight is drawn largely from the possessiveness, right? Mm. And so prey can bring a dog into a fight, but it won't keep him there because the prey moving decoy, whatever, running, once you bite him, he's no longer running. Now you're fighting him. And that willingness to guard, that willingness to possess is where the drive comes from. And we see in bloodlines that don't have that in them, the drive has to come from somewhere else. And if the, if, the prey will still bring the dog into the fight. More often than not, what keeps them them is that there is nerve. They're a little bit scared. And when you get too much of that, you end up with like shitty kind of nervous dogs that bite as a first response. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say or that- Or shift in, in bites. Yeah, exactly. They transfer and they do multiple but, targeting. Exactly. Mm. But but so like, it's not like it's a terrible thing to have that bit of nerve. In fact, you need it where the dog's like, hey, this is dangerous for me. I have to stay in this. I have to make sure that I win because it's dangerous if I don't. Mm. Whereas the other mindset that you get in some other bloodlines of dogs is like, I'm going to fucking crush you. And that they don't think of it as dangerous for themselves. They're like, no, I really want to hurt you, right? I really want to, or in some instances, like you try to take my thing and I'm going to fucking make sure you don't have the capacity to do that ever again. Strong predation means that the dog is trying to kill its prey. Yeah. So it's not a bit, it's not a fearful state of mind. And as we've learned from Roger Abrantes and 
other people in those areas. Predation is not aggression. Like you're not existing in an aggressive state. You're either in one or you're in the other. So in strong forms of predation, I mean, that's where you do get some crushing bites and where you do get a dog that holds you down and tries to, you know, literally end you um, because that's how they've been genetically engineered. So my point to explain all of that is that in the working dog space, especially people who deal with those kinds of dogs, people who want to do bite work and they have – those particular bloodlines that Mm. are known to be resource guarders, we need them to be that and we manage them. So my own dog, if people say like, is he food aggressive? I'd say, how the fuck would I know? I don't fuck with him while he eats Mm. because he certainly has the capacity to be a resource guarder because I can give him things to guard and he will. And the way that I often will reinforce him is that through, through tapping that part of his brain. What I think a lot of people don't realize is that 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 guarding, that willingness to guard something and fight for it is a mostly genetic trait. And most dogs don't have it. Mm. And because it's been bred out, it's a pain in the ass. With a pet, it's a pain in the ass to have. So there's a lot of people who give advice that with a young dog, you fuck with their food. And there's there's spectrums to this. There's advice that says you stuff around with their food to show them who's boss and you take it away from them intermittently. And that is the most ridiculous version. And the other version that you hear people give and people, you know, I see people try and teach is that you approach, you put your hand in the food, but then you provide some higher value thing to show that you're not a threat to the food. Mm. And both camps of people, and there's plenty of difference in between, and both camps of people have their own little fluffy pet dogs that they go, look, there's no food aggression in this dog because of this thing that I did. And to you, I would say, you couldn't fucking make your dog food aggressive if your goddamn life depended on Mm. it because a dog doesn't, a lot of dogs don't have the capacity to do that. It's been bred out of them, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's great. But when you get one that it's in there, you are going to cause the problem. You're going to rip the Band-Aid off and expose the wound that's underneath there. Mm. So the worst advice, the most dangerous advice that I see anybody give is fucking with dogs while they eat. Does that include spitting their food? <laughs> I think it probably does, right? <laughs> I think that it is it is extremely dangerous advice that I have seen a lot of in the past. I, I don't know that I see very much of it anymore, but the issue is a lot of that advice gets put onto you know, YouTube, social media, whatever, and people find it many years later. It yep. comes around mm. and people are still being um, – even if the – the producer of that content no longer agrees with what they made. Unless you take that video down, it's still there and can be found 10 years later. Yeah, but and they don't want to take it down if it's popular and exactly. it's got lots it's of getting, likes. Exactly. It's get, get, getting, getting the, the clout. Yeah. yeah. Mm. But that's my big concern, mate. And I think that that is really uh, – I think that very few people who – unless you deal in dogs that have that trait on purpose and, and you need that trait for work – I don't think many people realize how hard it is to create aggression and guarding when it's not there genetically. It's fucking hard to create because Mm. most dogs, especially just average pet dog breeds, have had that trait bred out of them. That is a super undesirable trait for the average pet owner. And for like a lot of us working dog people, we rely on that trait. And when it's not there, it's fucking really hard to make the dog do the things that we want them to do. It's really hard like to teach the object guard to a dog that doesn't have the desire to actually possess and guard and willingness to bite someone over taking their item. You can teach it. Of course you can, but it looks very, very different. And it's a trick essentially that the dog knows. Mm. And so I think 
that a lot of people teach it as a trick, right? They can actually sort of have the dog guard things, but the dog's never going to bite them. And this is where they're the people that can fuck with a dog's food and the dog growls and sort of carries on and clearly dislikes it. And they're like, no, but he knows that I'm boss. It's like, no, he just doesn't have the balls to bite you. Mm. And that's another genetic trait of the dog. Like he doesn't have the willingness to engage. And that's another fantastic genetic trait that we've bred into most dogs over time is that they, they, like they're not they're not not biting you because of your training. They're not biting you in spite of your shitty training, right? <laughs> and it's one of the things that I had a conversation with someone recently about. You know, the difference between I was talking to a friend of mine about dingoes and 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 wolves and sort of wild canids versus dogs. And I was like, the difference between wild animals and dogs is that that domestication piece of dogs is a dog will forgive you for things that it really shouldn't right? Mm. A lot of dogs will put up with a lot more bullshit than any other wild animal will, because for some reason they are enamored to you. They, they look at you as a leader, as a boss, as a pack member, as whatever it is, as Mm. being a super important part of their life. And they put up with a lot of bullshit that a wild animal would not. And that's why, you you know, a lot of people refer to as dingoes as the heartbreak dogs, because you can raise them and they pretend to be a dog, but once they hit maturity, they just go, I don't actually care for you. Mm. I don't, I'll do things so long as the operant process is there. So long as I find it reinforcing, I'll do it again. That's how it works. It has to. Yep. But then the, the dog looks at you and goes, I don't actually care for a relationship with you. Mm. And the minute you piss me off, I'm leaving because this is a like relationship of convenience. Mm. It's only that like you provide me with the things that I want and therefore I'll stay with you. Whereas a dog is like, no, I'll put up with your bullshit because for some reason- 10,000 years of genetic selection has led me to feel like I should. And they put up with a lot of bullshit that people put into their dogs. Whereas a wild animal would just be like, fuck you. I'm out of here. Right. Me and you aren't hanging out anymore. Yep. And so that is the dangerous advice that I see fucking with dogs while they eat. You just feed them. And I don't let other dogs fuck with each other either. So like my two dogs, like Valerie has very high food drive and certainly has the capacity to become food aggressive, but never would because I don't give her any opportunity to do those things. Mm. My dogs who happily live together, who happily coexist, they get fed in their kennels and I close the doors and I stand there and I watch them both eat. And then when they're done, Valerie always finishes long before Remy and she stands there with me. And then when they're both done, I'm like, okay, everybody gets to carry on with their lives. But Pat, what about your children? <laughs> like you've got two young babies, like well, a five-year-old and a newborn. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a dangerous situation? Yeah. Like, and please explain. Exactly. And mm-hmm. so I don't allow my dogs to do those things in front of my children. There yes. you go. I don't allow them to. Yeah. And of course, with the bloodlines of dogs that I like, as puppies, they'll guard their toys and shit and they'll bite you if you try and take it. And in those moments, you, you get a window, especially, and I've coached loads of people through this, and I know it's controversial advice as well, but with young bloodlines of dogs that are willing to fight over resources, the, there's a window where you can show them like, hey, I get that and I don't want you to stop being who you are. That's deeply ingrained in who you are but it's not effective on me. Mm. And you get a window in their life when they're young dogs to demonstrate that to them. And then they go, oh, got it. Like you can exist around my resources. Not only do I not want your resources, I'm not trying to take them, but if you for some reason misinterpret that I do want to take them, your attempts at aggression against me are going to be ineffective. And you can demonstrate that to them up until they're about five months old. And then after that, their attempts at aggression to stop you taking those things will be highly, highly effective. So- But I don't put my dogs and my kids in a position to fight over anything. Nor should you. 
And nor should anyone. Mm. And that's the thing. So that's why I can totally have possessive dogs because I love that inner trait. I don't want a dog that just lets me take stuff from them. That yep. that makes that to me is not what I want in a dog. I want a dog that's like, fuck you, this is mine. Mm. But as a result, I don't put my dog and my children in a position to ever meet head on like that. I manage them. I control them. Not long after I arrived in Sydney, I went out and did a private lesson in the East. And there was a lady there who'd been to another trainer and they were fucking around with food and the dog bit the child mm. and stitches, you know, like hospital, but they elected not to euthanize the dog. They got on to me through somebody else. I don't even know how I end up making the contact, but they rang me and said, can you come out and sort this out? Because we're really concerned and we're not happy with the other advice. I said, sure, I'll come and have a look at it. So I went out there and had a look at it. Very malleable young dog. It was a Cocker Spaniel cross, very malleable, friendly dog, friendly with the kids. And I said, how is the kid with the dog? And they said, look, they're fine. He's a little nervous around it. Young six, seven year old or something like that. And they said, he's a bit nervous as you would be and so forth. But the situation has never arose again. And I said, well, tell me about the situation. And it was only when the dog was given uneditable bones and the child was out there playing and went to touch the bone and the dog snapped at him and Mm -hmm. bit his finger. And I said, we can solve this simply, really. <laughs> and I said, just don't give the dog unendable bones. Yes. And really, your child shouldn't be messing with the dog while it's eating. Yeah. And I said, I'm not a fan of that at all. I don't like the whole poking around with your dogs with food. And I said, I like giving dogs food and I like dogs taking it from my hand. And I said, but when a dog is eating in a bowl, I don't like messing with dogs. Yeah. That's really draconian advice. It's mm. old advice. It's old, that old, like you must beat your dog down and keep them totally submissive to you. And I said, it doesn't work. It yeah. doesn't work the way that we've been indoctrinated to think. And I said, and it really takes a toll on the dog. The best thing to do is just don't give your dogs bones. There's no purpose for them, like lamb shanks. Mm. And that's what the dog had. It had a lamb shank. And I said, I don't give dogs lamb shanks. I don't give the dog anything. And I said, what's the point of it? And I said, what's the point of a dog having a bone that's full of bacteria? It's going to end up rounding its teeth off. And I said, you've got a quarter inch of bone that's just your dog is trying to munch through. It's got no nutritional value. There's nothing there for it other than an object to possess. And I said, it gets stinky and rancid. And I said, then the dogs start feeling that they need to possess it. Certain dogs do. Yeah. In this case, this is exactly what's happened. So don't do it. Just don't give the dog an uneditable bone. And I said, if you want to give your dog something, give it a chicken leg or something like that, which you can absolutely macerate the bone, digest it, and it has nutritional value. And then it's gone. There's nothing to possess. But while that's happening, let the dog alone and have the children inside and educate them, make them part of that education. Yeah. So what she did was she said, would you mind talking to the kids about it? She said, I think they'll take it more seriously coming from you. So absolutely. So we sat down with the whole family, mum, dad, two kids, and we had a chat about it and I let the kid talk to me. He was a bit upset about being bitten by the dog. And I said, look, mate, you got to understand that sometimes when you and your sibling have got things and you value it highly, and I said, I bet you sometimes hit your sister or you're aggressive towards her and then your mum and dad have to come down and say, look, you have to share and you don't want to, you really don't want to. He goes, yeah, yeah, I do do that. And I said, well, that's what the dog is. That's the state of mind that you've got the dog in. This dog's thinking, I don't want to give this up. Mm. Like this is mine and I, you got everything else of mine, but this is highly valued to me. Mm. I don't want to share it with you. I don't want to give it to you. And I said, that's not going to change in your dog's head. I said, at this stage, you've either all got to accept that the dog goes or it stays and then you have – Change the way you live with it. You change the way you live. You have boundaries. So I totally agree with that. 
I used to be one of those people who wanted to fuck around with dogs, food and so forth, but we don't do any of that now. We don't do it with dogs in the kennels. We don't do it with dogs here at the resort. You know, like I don't teach that sort of thing with people. It's just something that we abandoned a long time ago. I have no value to that form of training anymore. And I really do find it a draconian way of looking at things. It's just, it's very invasive. It doesn't end well. Yeah. And like I say, I think there'll be loads of people saying, well, I do it and it never caused an issue. I'm like, that's because you couldn't cause that issue even if you tried. Yep. That's not happening because of your Yeah, there are some dogs who are so submissive with those type of things, I don't care. The majority are. The yeah. majority of dogs They'll roll over. Yeah. Yeah. The majority of dogs have that food aggression and like that possessiveness bred out of them yep. because it's a headache trait. And if mm. you got, if you just want a little fluff ball that hangs out on the couch, you have no need for that trait. But I love that trait. I think it's fantastic. I don't want that going anywhere. I just manage it. And- and as my dog, you know, food is an obvious one because I can just put it down, leave it alone. They eat it and then it's gone and mm. there's nothing to fight over. When I give my dogs, I don't give them like traditional bones, but if I give them something to chew on that's going to take a while, they both get locked in their kennels and they, you can spend an hour in the kennel eating those things. You get an hour with it. And then usually if they haven't finished it in that time, then I let one out that has and the other one has to stay in there. And then if it looks like they're not going to finish it. You just take it away. Yeah, then I I let them out and when they leave it, I go in there Well, they're not around. Like I take them away. Like I wait till they're going to the park or whatever. I put them in the car. Then I go get that thing. So when they come back, it's just not there. Yep. That is no like there's no need for them to see me taking it away. And the other thing is as well, like I show the dogs within the house that I'm not – we're not competing over resources. Mm. All that my dogs have in the house that's theirs is they've got a couple of Kongs and I don't fuck with the Kongs. Yep. These are yours. You chew them, whatever. Unless they bring them to you and want yeah. to engage in a game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Mando's has a young puppy. He's very malleable with that type of thing. Like he wants to bring his toys over and engage with you. Everything he has, he goes and gets it and he brings it over. He sits on your lap and pushes it at you saying like, Let's play, play with me. Yeah. Yeah. Fine. Where Macho is a little bit different with things like that. Certain things he'll bring over, other things he wants to possess and he wants to sit. And I don't chase him around or make him give it to me or anything like that. I just don't see the need for it unless it's a command and unless it's a behavior that I'm, you know, like we're doing a specific fetch or something like that where I'm saying this is my item, bring it back to me. Mm-hmm. If it's his item and he wants to sit afar and, and play with it, I just let him be. Yeah. And I think like long-term management of dogs that do have that within them that are like, no, this is mine and I'm going to fight for it, is you go like, yeah, but don't fight me. Like I'm not interested in taking it. I'm not the enemy. I'm not taking it. Yeah, Yeah. anytime me and you interact with this thing, there's not going to be a a winner and a loser. It's going to be a a fun little game that we play. Yep. And then that's it. Like I'm not going to be – I'm not your competitor for your resource. I entirely agree. Wonderful. Yeah. I would have fought you over that 30 years ago. Yeah, and I think that there's still people who will. Yeah. Um, oh, I would have been, you know, like hard basing that situation entirely and saying, no, no, you're wrong. The dog has to be shown its place. But back then, that was the days of you've got to walk through the threshold of a door first. And yeah. there were a lot of wives' tales about the things that you need to do. Like none of my dogs, even with Harley, who was a very powerful dog, like extremely powerful dog, he used to sleep on my bed. Yeah. Every trainer I knew back then was saying that is an absolute mistake. But then I was listening to their advice and telling other people not to do it because I thought, well, I know better. Mm. I'm above these people. They, <laughs> they're below me in, yeah. in, the, in the scope do of things. Do as I say, not as I do. Exactly. Yeah. Harley used to sleep on the bed. He used to growl at you if you tried to take him off the bed. And even my ex, he snapped at her over trying to be removed off the bed, but we never stopped him. He used to run through the threshold of the door and everything like that. All my dogs do that. Like, I didn't give a fuck about that. They all come clambering through the door and... 
but I have some exceptions which I'm okay to live with where yeah. other people don't. They don't understand those type of things and it doesn't sit well in their life. Like the way my dogs behave and the way they do things, other people would find that entirely unsavory. Mm. For them to have that sort of destructiveness or that sort of rambunctiousness in their house is totally unacceptable. And for them, that's where they do need a place marker or they do need to understand crate time or more time outside or shared living arrangement or whatever it is because the dog will die. It'll pay for it with its life if some sort of structure and guideline isn't given. Yeah. yeah. Very unfairly. You yeah. know, they'll be removed off to it's going to welfare or something like that where that's just nice talk for somebody else's problem now. Yeah, yeah. I think the role of dominance and that kind of stuff, right, it's such a can of worms mm. because I think the role of dominance in training is grossly overset. Like dominance obviously exists. Yep, it does. It 100% exists. And people who say it doesn't, they, they don't understand what it is. But the role of dominance in training has been grossly overstated and the idea of alpha rolling your dog, like I've had to, like I've had dogs come back at me and you have to restrain them. Yeah. But it's it, management and yeah, technique. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. But then the idea that like the dog can't be on a higher plane than you or can't go through the doorway or be on the furniture, take the high ground, all that kind of stuff. I think that that is nonsense when we're talking about just dominant, like in, in you being in control. But I think that dominance theory does still play a role in training in a much less physical sense and in a much more mental sense. Because like when you're outsmarting the dog and if you let the dog think that it's getting what it wanted, but you're actually getting what you wanted because you're infinitely smarter than a dog, mm. then really you are asserting your dominance over the dog. I agree with that. I would suggest that the better way to look at it from most people who are talking about this matter is more like leadership. Yeah. And with leadership. But it, so it's just wordplay, right? It is. It's exactly wordplay. And I mean, it's not that I don't believe in dominance because I just don't see a world without dominance in any way, shape or form. No, 100%. You can be in that paradigm of thinking, oh, I don't believe in dominance. I challenge you to watch any National Geographic show when two males are competing for the attention of a female. They might do a, a behaviour, let's call it a behaviour, where they start writing with each other and, and roughing each other up. But at some stage, one is going to try and hurt the other one, and that is a form of dominance and also a form of aggression. Like it's getting into realms where it's saying, well, if you don't submit, I'm going to fuck you up. Yeah. You know, like I'm going to gouge you up with my horns or I'm going to rip you up with my teeth or I'm going to scratch you to bits with my claws or batter you with my fins or whatever it is because – all species do it. Fish do it. Yeah. You know, like the test, I, I think Forrest Mickey was talking about it years ago when he was on the podcast. And I looked up the study and it did exist about the hummingbird where when they started to make the syrup a little sweeter, there was a larger hummingbird that came in and literally beat up on the other ones to mm. say, fuck off, this is mine. Mm. You know, and he was resource guarding, but he was also dominating them to say, I'm bigger and stronger than you and there's nothing you can do and I'm taking yeah. this resource from you. So I challenge anybody to say, that dominance does not exist at all. Like, I just think that's a really ignorant place to be. Yeah, it's nonsense. But let's get back into the wordplay of what leadership is and where this is where I prefer to sit with owning a dog or being in a relationship with a dog for those who are so obsessed with or have a hatred for the word owning. So if you're in a relationship with a dog and then you're talking about the aspect of leadership, well, leadership is something that ebbs and flows. Let's take, for example the boss of my company or the boss of your company, mm -hmm. there are times where they will be in a dominant position because they have the skills. Final say. They have the final say or the skills and knowledge that outclass everybody else. Mm -hmm. 
However, they also employ people that have other skills and knowledge which will dominate them in other fields. Mm. But that's where leadership ebbs and flows. And that's the same thing with a dog. Like if you look at olfaction for argument's sake, olfaction, dogs dominate you all day long. They smash you in their ability to use their nose. We're clumsy when it comes up to the ability of scent detection. It's not that they try to. It's just a fact of life. They are dominant in that skill set. Mm. And people in a working aspect are dominant in certain fields. Like you might have in a person who is an accountant. They're dominating you with figures. Mm. Like you go to them to sit down with them to be schooled by them on what's happening with your business because that's their strong skill set. So I kind of look at it in that fashion. Is there certain things that a dog is dominant in just by facts of raw nature? And there's areas that we're completely dominant in as well, like thinking and problem solving. Human beings are dominant all day over most species on earth. And that's just a fact of life. There will be times where a dog will outclass you in a certain type of behavior and you're just thinking, fuck, you got one over me on that. Yeah. But sometimes it's not such a bad thing. Yeah. Well, that's what I agree with entirely is the idea that I don't need to be physically dominant over my dog. Because I'm so much fucking smarter than him. Yeah. And and I can be like, no, this is going to go how I want it to go because I'm going to orchestrate that. I don't need to smash a square peg through a round hole because Mm. I have a dominant, powerful dog. And so I'm like, well, I don't ever have to come to blows with you. I don't have to ever like have it out and see who's more, who's more powerful because that's not true dominance. Mm. It's like things are going to like in my experience and even to use your example of like two bucks that are going to fight over a female, what's really happening is they both are like, I want something and I'm going to make it happen. Mm. And violence is within my Rolodex of things that I'm prepared to use to make what I want happen. Yep. I can look at it and go, I want something to happen. And I'm super smart compared to a dog, (laughs) not like in people's standards, I'm a moron, but Mm. compared to a dog, I'm super smart. So like, I'm just going to orchestrate things to go the way that I want. And you're not a moron. You understate yourself. Well, that still is to me a level of exerting my dominance over the dog Mm. because I'm like, things are going to go the way I want it to. And you're going to find yourself doing that. And we don't have to fight. And in fact, if I orchestrate it correctly, you might still feel pretty powerful about it. In fact, very likely I'm going to keep that dominance of yours intact. And you're going to be like, look at this sucker. But in reality, I'm the one that that orchestrated made that whole thing go that way. Mm, Funny that I call it the illusion of control. Yeah. For me, it's just like racking up my chess game a lot better and outclassing my opponent. A game of chess doesn't mean that you have to have two people that are beating the shit out of each other at the end of the game. It's just literally that you are outskilling your opponent. Yeah. At the same time, you're both having an enjoyable game with each other. Yeah. And I kind of look at the same thing with a dog when we have leadership is there's certain things that there's things that Mando's doing at the moment, which are just outrageous, but I'm letting it happen. Like he's coming in and biting me and doing all sorts of things that he doesn't do to other people, but I'm allowing it to happen for now. Mm. And if anybody else saw it, they'd be saying to me, why are you allowing this to happen? It's because it's part of my long-term strategy. It's things that I'm allowing him to shape and allowing him to develop and allowing him to feel safe in that later in life he will benefit it. But other people would look at it and say, oh, man, this is dangerous behavior, like you're setting yourself up for this. Well, fuck you because I've developed literally dozens of puppies and I've developed some pretty powerful dogs before and I've done it all the same way and none of them have ripped me up or torn me up in the back. It's not to say that it wouldn't happen. It's not to say that it would never happen. I could guarantee it would never, ever happen. When you're dealing with anything biological, there are ebbs and flows in the way that they behave and the things that they think about and do and there are certain aspects which you may not be aware of. But once again... If you're in a better form of developing good forms of leadership and having good strategies in place, then you can foresee a lot of these things that Mm. could happen 
It's like the term duty of care, having the foresight to look at a problem and saying, I could potentially cause this issue if I push on it. This could cause an explosion. I need to step back from this situation right now. And there are times with dogs that we've had in the kennels, even my own dogs before, where I've thought this could be an explosive situation. There was a time where I pushed Randy into confrontation with me one day and I thought he's going to tone me up if I keep pushing him on this. Mm. And to be honest, he was within every right to do so as well because how hard I was pushing on him at the time was too intense for what was going on. I wasn't micro planning then. I wasn't working in the small enough increments. I was pushing macros on him. Yeah. I was literally saying to him, you will fucking do this. And for him, he was at a frustration level where we thought, I don't understand this. And my only way out of it now is to show you that I'm willing to fight you over it. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, well, I've pushed you into this confrontation now. This is on me. And me being the smarter one in this situation, I can be totally stupid and lower myself to a considerably lower IQ point and push the dog on on that and make him like push him into a situation where there is confrontation and the risk of being bitten by him. Yeah. But that's a fucked up situation for me to put the dog in. Yeah, exactly. And I haven't shown any consideration or respect to him as a dog. I've certainly overplayed my situation as a good handler or good trainer or a good leader in that sort of situation. That's where pride and ego start really fucking with you. And you really got to look at it and say, Am I at that point in my life where I'm just so fed up with things and so over it that I'm willing to fuck up a good relationship with a dog over the way that I think something should go down when clearly the universe is speaking to me loudly and saying, hey, if you fucking push this point, you are literally going to fucking light this dog up and he is going to come at you. And the relationship that you've been building for the last three or four years is going to come to a fucking cataclysmic halt right now and there is going to be some blood spilled. Yeah, you can't unring that bell. Pretty much. You can't stuff the genie back in the bottle. You know, yeah. that that is out. And that changes your relationship too because not only does that put the conflict, but if the dog works out that that's a way that it can stop problems yeah. or like it can relieve itself from stress, you know, you and I have talked about episodes and episodes and there have been experiences on both of us where we've just seen that happen where well, that puts you in a fucking hurt locker. Matt, I've met a few dogs lately that, Someone said, show that dog who's boss. Yep. And they found out the dog was the boss. That's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) Those are my favorite dogs. A dog that's prepared to come at you like that, I like that in a dog. I never want it to happen, but I like that trait. Yeah. That tells me a lot about the dog and how he'll work in other places. But I never want that to actually happen because- yeah, I'm smarter than a dog. I, I orchestrate things to go the way I want. And I'm like, hey, man, like we're working towards this together. And the moment the dog starts seeing me as a competitor or opposition or, or, or someone that can be overrun, mm. you're like, hey, whoa, whoa, like this has all gone pear-shaped back to the drawing board and rebuilding that cooperation with the dog and saying like, hey, we're working together, man. Yeah, Like we're working towards what I want, but I'm going to put in the time, effort, energy to convince you that you want it as well. Mm. And that this gate that we're going through, which is the gate I set, that's the behavior I want, is the path to success. Yep. And I want the dog to be as convinced as that as me and not begrudgingly doing anything. I mm. want the dog being like, yeah, th- we'll do it together. Because I think that's the big risk in the working dog space. Like, you know, and, and it happens in the pet dog space as well. Yep. But much more so in working dogs is the old, like someone says, I cringe every time I hear it. When someone says, show that dog who's boss, I'm like, you might be about to find out that it's the fucking dog. And then what? Mm. Then what happens after that? And the thing that really pisses me off about that is we then start culling 
the good dogs. Yeah. Because of bad training. Exactly. Those are the dogs that people like, people who train like me, and there's millions that enjoy the powerful dogs and know how to handle them and want that. It's getting harder and harder to find them because they are seen as a problem for people who don't know how to manage that. Just on top of that, because I don't want to forget that because it's too important what you just talked about then. That's a massive concern to me when I think about a lot of the agency and law enforcement dogs that go out there and then get immediately desexed. Mm. And I think, well, oh. that, that's a bloodline that's gone. Yeah, 100%. You know, like a powerful, extreme dog. Really, the only way that you could get that dog back is by cloning it because yeah. the bloodline has disappeared. Yeah. And people say, oh, it doesn't matter. They're over in Europe, but they're disappearing in Europe as yeah, well. Yeah, there's-, there's either too many contenders for them or they're just vanishing. You know, yeah. like the old guys that were running those things that they're getting either getting out of the business, they're getting too old or they're just moving on. Yeah. There's two spectrums that really fuck up those dogs. It's an overly compulsive, like people who are like, show the dog who's boss and it mm. turns out the dog is. And so the dog's too much for them. But then also there's the no tools gang that are like, that dog's too hard to handle. And so it's the normal training in the middle that are capable of, you know, intelligent training that's yeah. capable of managing a really powerful dog. It's and just it's a like, good funnel. Yeah. Yeah. But you get people who like crash and bash and the dog's like, hey, I don't like that happening to me. Yeah. And then you get people who are like, no, I'm not prepared to deal with any level of aggression in a dog because it makes it hard to deal with. And mm. it's like, well, fuck, well, all we're left with is this flaccid fucking nothing in the middle. Yep. Anyway, that's my whinge. I've enjoyed this conversation immensely and I don't want to make probably too much of a long one out of mine. Let's do yours as a different episode. Okay. We'll do mine as a different episode. This we one's could, all about me, Glenn. Yes. I enjoyed this conversation. Like yeah, for fun. some, We kind of got together. We'd both been had a busy week and we didn't really know what we we're going to talk about and we've managed to fill an hour. So we can make this the part one. Part and one. we can have part two next week. Yep. Yep. All right. Sounds good. Yep. Good place to leave it. Yeah. I'm excited to finish this because I'm going to run out and get my dog. I haven't seen him in, seen him and her. Val's week. been here as well. Yeah. Yeah. It was on the last podcast we did. Yeah. That's when you dropped them off and- I'm here to pick them up. Yep. Just before we do wrap up, the Cameron Ford seminar that's happening on the 15th and 16th of October, he is doing his Oda Pays seminar. That is half full already. I put it up on Eventbrite two days ago. Literally half the tickets are gone now. I've had about 15, 20 people contact me saying, I'm going to book, I'm going to book. I'm not waiting for you. So <laughs> if the ticket's booked because I've got obligations to pay Cam and yeah. you know, like lots of expenses out of it and so forth, I'm not waiting for people. There's no reservations or held tickets. Once those places are gone, they're gone. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, um, Cam and I had a conversation the other day. I was just doing final checks with him. Super nice guy. We should get him on the show. He wants to be on the show. Like yeah. we told him that we're going to do the podcast. So Hopefully, if you're in town, you'll be able to come out. And yeah, it should be. So we can hang out and should be. do some stuff. Yeah. So he's staying here over the time. He's one of the nicest guys ever. He's yeah. just so obliging. Yeah, and, super nice dude. Yeah. And very intellectual when it comes to all things you center tech You haven't met him, have you? Not in person. In person no, I know yeah, you've yeah. been over there yeah. and, and hung out with him, but yeah. no, I haven't met Cam. Yeah, I just realized that. I was like, oh, yeah. shit, yeah. Because that was just before the world collapsed that I yeah. was over there. Yeah, in Vegas. Yeah. What a fun time to be alive. Yeah, exactly. Just to recap on yours, you've got your seminar in Chicago. Uh, Chicago. Yeah, so it's the only one happening in the States, I think, this year. The boot camp thing is sold out as far as I know. I yep. think that's sold out, but there's still some spots for the seminar. So jump onto all the socials. You'll find links to it somewhere. Yep. It's found Chicago, so their website will have all the details. Yep. There's still some seminar spots, I think. Yep. Just so it's public record too, I'm not going to ISCP this year and it's mm. not for any political or any other reasons. It's because I've got too much going on here in Australia and mm-hmm. I cannot make it over there. A mm-hmm. couple of other reasons as well, but I would love to have been there. There's a bunch of people that have reached out to me and said, are you coming over? I want to catch up and hang out. I'm not coming over for this year. 
the board of directors actually asked me to be on one of the panels. I politely declined because I just didn't feel that it would be valued to do it via Zoom. I'd rather be there in person and, mm-hmm. and see and hang out with everyone. I'm super disappointed because I'd love to see Pat and Jazz do their thing going over there and catching up with everybody as well. But I just cannot be there this year. There's just no way it can happen. Yeah. Once the floodgates open back up in this country and our business is all kicked off, it's just gone gangbusters and it's going mad here. Yeah. So. I can't do it. I think that for you and I both, the reality of the difficulty of travel is 10 times worse than it was. Absolutely. It's horrendously difficult right now. Like even flying around within our own country still has a lot of difficulties. Even Sydney airport the other day, the feds were telling me when I was there, because they do all the airports. The two guys that were down from Sydney were saying that at one stage they were so understaffed that there was a, a line almost a mile long of people waiting to get onto planes and get through security. Yeah. They just said they've never, ever seen anything like that. It was three hours. Three hours, yeah, three hours away. Three hours to get through security. Yep. Fuck that. Imagine that. Yep. Yep. Thanks. That's just cataclysmic. Maybe Qantas should actually employ some people to fucking work there. That would be the issue. And Virgin. Yeah. Virgin has been all right. There's been a lot of delayed flights, but the actual, all my experiences with them, they're back and running okay. When I was in Canberra flying back to Sydney, staff weren't there at the ticketing counter. Really? Yeah, they weren't there until like maybe it was just, there was a flat zone and there was no flights happening with Virgin, but I had to wait probably at 45 minutes before somebody, because Coey dropped me off early. Oh yeah. So they don't man it until, two, like yep. regional ones, they don't man it until the designated time for that flight. Yeah. 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 yeah where all the Qantas people were just, you yeah, know, like. Yeah, it would have been other Qantas flights. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy stuff. And then I had to go on one of those tiny little twin prop planes. Oh yeah, yeah. They're fun. Funny thing about those little twin prop planes is that they're in the air before you know it. Like with the big, yeah. you know, 737s and so forth, they take a bit of a run up and, yeah. you know, they, they've got to really um, beef it up the runway to get there. Those little prop planes, they just go and they're up. Yeah. Hey, that's it for the airline podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you like what you hear, just jump into some form of subscription service and leave us a comment. It turns out that people are yelling in the streets, which is fantastic. That is funny. It's funny as hell. Continue doing that. Put it on your Instagram or your TikTok or, you know, wherever you put things. I put a survey out a while ago on the discussion group just through our hosting system and a lot of people responded to it. Thank you very much. And they put a lot of information up there and a lot, a hell of a lot of compliments. Yeah. But one of those points that a lot of people did say, like a large percentage of them, is that they want to hear guests back on the show. Yeah. And so do we. So do we, yeah. Yeah. It's just... Time zone, but, yeah. but we're going to make it happen. Yeah, we need to find a way. Yep. We might have to do it early like morning. Early morning, like real early morning yep. or something. Yep. Do it remotely. We'll make it happen. We'll make it work. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. If you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Mm-hmm. If you want to support the show, jump into Patreon. I just put some stuff into there. Uh, there's always info in there, live streams, blah, blah, blah. And Three people bucks a month. did jump in and support yep. because you put that in there. I saw some people upping their, oh, did they? their subscription oh, and new exciting. people joining. So thank you. Thank you so much, Patreon people. How exciting. Yeah. We just upgraded to the- Yeah. I was going to say, you're, you're listening to us on a brand new board. Yeah, we've got the Roadcaster Pro 2. We're amazing. Yep. And that came from Patreon. So thank you very much, thank Patreon. Thank you, Patreon. Yep. The other way to support the show is buy yourself some cool shit from Spring. Are there what was on there? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> get a t-shirt. Yep. If you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the discussion group. It's the Canine Paradigm discussion group on Facebook. You can mm-hmm. group source some information there. You've got topics you want to hear. That's the best place to put it. Mm-hmm. And if you want to shoot us an email, we are info at the Canine Paradigm dot com goodbye